I'm going. I'm going to try to not go outside our topic, but I do Hello. think this point. Hi. Hey. Sorry, I was in the middle of a meeting with. The- Honey, we started without you, so we're already we're already in the we midst of recording. You off the island. Oh, uh, so you could just delete that section because nobody needs to know that. Okay. <laughs> you bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hey. So it has come to pass. Jason is a married man. Yay. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. So how did it go? Did you save a lot of money because you couldn't invite anyone like your very best friends? No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> you're kind of you're kind of stealing the, my recommendation from later, but um, which is to have a, a to have a, a quickie elopement, wedding, a elopement wedding. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, on the one hand, it's like wow, obviously it's enormously cheaper and and it is a lot less work, and yet I think I go into it and I'm like. Oh, this is going to be like, you know, very easy. It's going to be simple because it's just an elopement. We're not inviting lots of people. We're not feeding lots of people. And then I think because I set that bar there, it was like, this is still a lot of work. <laughs> There's still a lot to do. But no, it was fantastic. And you know, we had a kind of last minute change the schedule to deal with weather, but it ended up being like perfect weather and it was beautiful. We will have pictures in four to six weeks. We do have a video that we have to edit, um, but it's uh, it was great. Thank you. It was great. Wow. I'm very happy. I'm very happy. I did see a couple of pictures. The kids look adorable. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that I, I enjoy that they wore sneakers to your wedding. I love that. Everyone should wear sneakers all the time. Why don't we always wear comfortable footwear? That's always um, worn comfortable. You know what? Let's uh, let's not even say that. I was about to say you always wear comfortable footwear, but you don't. I remember you used to wear really uncomfortable footwear. (laughs) I changed. I changed. Let me tell you something. I cleaned out my closet like two years ago, and every pair of shoes I I had like maybe seriously like twenty four pairs of shoes, and about four of them were in circulation. Four pairs. So I threw everything else out because you buy shoes like these are cute, and then you wear them out one night. You can't feel anything below your ankle. And you're like, this sucks, but they're cute. Anyway, I threw them all out. And now I only wear sneakers to everything. If, if I would have come to the wedding, Jason, I would have worn sneakers and a t-shirt. So there it is. We did hike. I mean, it, it's a 45-minute hike up oh my God. before the wedding. So I was you know, wondering about that. So I, were there, I so changed was it just at the top. your kids at the hike? Was it just your kids at the wedding? Or were other was, people there with you? It was just, it was the two the two of us are four kids, my now sister in law, Lindsay who's been on this show who officiated, and the photographer. Everyone had a function. Like my sister in law was the videographer. We had a professional photographer. Lindsay was officiant, and then the six of us in the family. Let me say something about this. The most Jason wedding you can have is a wedding where you have to fucking hike first. <laughs> you know what though? It was all. You know what I mean? That was all happy though. I because I. I I would be furious with you. I would be furious with you. No, listen. Habby wanted a view from a mountaintop, which was cool. I found us a mountaintop where the parking lot was right in front of the view. All right. And we we went up there. I was like, this is it. This is perfect. And Habby was like, the view, it was like you saw a lot of farms. She wanted to see only nature. 
and we could not, we, we did several hikes to try to find the spot and we found it, but it was a 45 minute hike. And that was her. It was, I mean, I'm, I'm, does, I'm not complaining, but that was her idea. Does, does Abby listen to this podcast? No. She doesn't? Okay, great. So I'm just going to say, <laughs> maybe you should be a little less high maintenance at the beginning. <laughs> like, sort of. <laughs> Georgia, did you get married this weekend? What did you do? <laughs> uh, no. Um, <laughs> I did. Uh, it's so funny. I went to a Juneteenth celebration. Oh, fun. In the park. And it was great to be in the park. Everyone had masks around them, theoretically. What does but that not mean? Everyone had them around them also, in the general vicinity. You know, they had them on their neck or whatever. So I walk into the thing. Okay, it's outside. So I walk in. And I was wearing my mask. And then over time, I was like, well, maybe I'll pull the mask down a little bit, put it on. So, I mean, it's That's how it starts. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. It was fine because we're outside. And I think actually people kind of maintain social distance. And it was really great. The food was really good. The person who put it on listens to this podcast. So it was fabulous. Um, But the thing is, um, (laughs) the thing, the the note for myself, though, is that immediately upon doing it, I went home and I was like, do I need to self-isolate? Like, it's just this tension between being responsible out and then like feeling like, well, the numbers are rising. What else is everyone else doing? You know, just like we are really living in a space where people have stopped actively talking about it as a pandemic. And so you're really just kind of left to your own kind of devices in yeah. terms of how you manage it for yourself. And nothing has changed. You right. know, that's Absolutely the thing. Nothing. Like in California, the cases are rising. In New York, they're they're dipping. Mm-hmm. But like how it gets transferred from one person to another. Nothing has changed. There's been no vaccine. No, No, there's no treatment. As far as antibodies, they're not sure how immune you are or for how long. I noticed the coffee place by me, it used to be like only one customer inside at a time, but now they've crossed that out and put three at a time. (laughs) And I'm like, nothing's different. You know what I mean? You're just saying you're now more comfortable exposing to additional people who are in your establishment. <laughs> yeah, that- mean, that's, realistically, that's honestly, first of all, you're not tagging in the CDC as much as you did before. And people have stopped giving press conferences with the frequency they used to. Which oh, federal sure. government has just like, they're like done. Well, oh, I mean, no, they've moved into inciting race riots. Yeah. Well, I mean, right. They're like, no, you know what? The just, pandemic is not good for the reelection campaign. So we're just going to stop talking yeah. about. But even just in general, in other spaces where they're not worried, where they're not thinking sort of big picture on the larger scale, federal government level. Right. But locally, it feels to me as if people are kind of niggling their way back to a kind of state of normal without really doing the research. So I saw some research out of the UK that said that what they were recommending within their agencies was to decrease the distance inside. But then pure, a purely research study came out and said, that's not true. Why would it be? Why would that be true? Exactly. Right. But the recommendation continues. And so now people feel quite comfortable pulling more people in inside because the initial recommendation suggested that they could. And so I think on the American side, what we've been doing is we've what like we've had like uh, they've decided, oh, you are stage one, stage two. But we already know that people are breaking the rules for stage one. And so now they're like, we are at stage two. What does that meaningfully mean? What does that meaningfully say? No, from my perspective, what's actually happening 
but no one will say because they don't want to get sued, is that governments and businesses, our, our local, state, federal government, governments and, and businesses, are basically making trade-offs that they're not willing to talk about around economic decisions versus health decisions, right? Like, that's what the governments are doing. I mean, they're basically saying the pain of this economically, we've now decided, is worse than, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have a harder time withstanding the economic pain than we are the public health pain. So yeah. we're going to ease. That, that's what happening, but no one will say it because they don't want to get sued for it when, as this, people die. The, I saw this on Instagram. I'm just going to read it. It's someone posted, it's not reopening. It's casual normalization of death for the poor because capitalist fascism has no viable solution that offers protection for the most vulnerable among us while still producing trillionaires, which is the case, right? <laughs> well, so I mean, when, it, when you say yeah. three people can come in instead of one, you're like, listen, we all understand that someone can get sick and die. But look, I got to sell this coffee. You know what I mean? No, no that that's, statement that's, was that's true. That's what we're saying. Only... I would only add the old and the poor because there are higher income old people that we've become comfortable with dying. Like I, I you know, I get numbers from a bunch of states because of because of government relations aspect of my job, and so I get Connecticut's Connecticut. Some of their highest numbers are in Fairfield County. I'm not saying everyone in that county is rich, but that's a very rich county. I mean, hell, even the county I live in is one of the wealthiest in the country. Now there are there's plenty of poverty, but there are a lot of upper income older people and. And so I think, yes, we're certainly willing to have the poor get sick, but we're also willing to have older people, even if they're not poor, get sick and die. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting calculus. And so what it does is um, it really puts the onus on the individual. I mean, that's really what the, the long story short for me is that you have to say to yourself, what are my priorities and what are the risks I'm willing to take? Because you have no support elsewhere. Mm -hmm. You can't yeah. lean in on any other kind of institutional support to make that decision. So well, well said. That's right. Well done. Let's talk about a topic. Yeah. Are you guys down to talk about stuff? <laughs> Since we're all here <laughs> on your we schedule. Just did. Okay. Yeah, I feel like we just knocked out an organic topic. I love that. Yeah, that was great. Um, no planning necessary. So <laughs> we're all comfortable with normalizing people dying. That's, <laughs> that's where we land. All right. Uh, moving on. So we have been trading articles back and forth about abolishing policing. Trisha had shared an article written by Dorothy Roberts. I think her point is abolishing the police means also getting rid of family regulation through CPS, like Child Protective Services, because that whole system, the child welfare system, is very injurious to black and brown communities. It breaks up families. It's, it's terrible. But what Trisha and I got into, there is this connection that people make between social work, social service agencies, and the child welfare agency which I do not think actually exists as strongly in real life as it does in media and the fiction that we consume about those agencies. So for, for Dr. Roberts here in her article, she says, I see everyone is calling for the abolishing of the police and dumping that money into child welfare agencies. And I was like, first of all, I haven't seen anyone say that. But what I think is going on is that when you hear social work, you think about child welfare agencies and baby snatchers and families being broken up. Additionally, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal written by a woman from, she was a conservative person, Naomi Schaefer Riley. She is, I think, works for a conservative think tank. Anyway, yeah, she, American Enterprise Institute. American, I knew, something a, like a, that. Uh, she um, wrote a terrible article, poorly researched about what social workers do, and she made a lot of claims that were just, just 
flat out not true about the, the training and the certification of social workers. The National Association of Social Workers slapped her wrist with a ruler um, when they issued their own op-ed to the Wall Street Journal, which is where this was posted. So it just got us thinking, long intro, thank you very much. It just got us thinking, what do we need to do to increase the public's understanding of the role of social workers and social service agencies in our society. This is going to be a pivotal conversation if we are going to push for the abolition of police. Because as we take all of these tasks away from the police, they're going to have to fall to someone. And the people, in my opinion, you know, full disclosure, I'm a social worker, the people most able to do it are social workers and social service agencies. But that's going to be a hard sell to the public whose only exposure to those jobs are law and order SVU. What do you guys think? Where do we need to start here? So maybe I'm going to ask us to reflect on whose profession is accurately re reflected in media messages. Like, how does one know about a thing? Like, how do you know what a doctor does? How do you know? Because that's really the bigger question you're asking is, if people have this perception that police clearly should not be charged with doing the things that they have currently been charged with, which we now realize that as we begin to have the conversation about abolishing police, we have begun to deconstruct actual labor of the police. And it's only now that there's room for people to say, oh, I can see why we wouldn't have police do this. But we have for a long time perceived police as doing a set of things that are now clear to many of us erroneous, wrong. And we assume that that came through television, movies we've seen, things like that. But then it, so this question is a larger question of how does one accurately know the jobs of people in any space? What you're posing, Tricia, is a good question for any profession. My sense is for social work, it's even more difficult because social workers do lots of different things. And there are people who interact with social workers who don't know that they're interacting with social workers. So for instance, there are social workers who provide therapy. And so people might say, I'm going to a therapist and they might not know whether that therapist has a degree in social work versus another field that also qualifies them to provide therapy. There are people who interact with social workers from child welfare agencies like that article talks about. And from my point of view, it's such a broad field that it makes it really difficult. And so when you talk about, Chris, like social workers portrayed on SVU, not that I've ever watched SVU, but I'd imagine there probably are social workers that they are portraying somewhat accurately, but it's probably a small minority of them. And so I think, Tricia, to answer your question, I mean, look, I think we, first of all, have to acknowledge most people probably have very limited contact with most professions, whether that's in the media or in real life, right? I mean, if we think about 90% of movies, television shows, they're representing a very small sliver of professions, right? This is why kids all want to be doctors and lawyers and, and, uh, that's why and, kids' parents want them to be doctors and lawyers. Kids <laughs> want to be pop stars and football players. But football players, right? Good point. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's like we could count on, on, you know, on our, on one hand, the professions that we get a lot of exposure to. And I'll say exposure in quotes because I think as we're discussing here, that exposure is limited, it's misleading, it's inaccurate in, in many cases. And again, I'll just end by saying, I think social work, it's even more complicated because of the diversity of social work practices. And that, you know, there are people in society that probably never interact with social workers. And again, there are others that do and don't know it. And there are others that only interact with certain kinds of social workers. To get back to your question, though, Tricia, I, 
thinking about this now, like how do we learn about professions like through media, like what stories are being told? I'm adding a, an addendum to that is like, who's telling those stories? Now, I understand that like, we have a lot of cop and fireman shows and hospital shows because we've had this conversation before because it's interaction with the public, right? So from a, from a TV model, it makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of drama, there's a lot of crises, and there's a lot of ways to bring in special guest stars. And, and there's so, physical dynamism, right? Those are yes. physical jobs that lend themselves to a visual medium. Exactly. So, I mean, and every now and then they'll, they'll go out on a limb and we'll see a hotel, a show about hotels or a show about something like a vacation spot. Again, because there's a lot of access to the public and that, like you said, it's very visual. But I think there are some jobs that just aren't that glamorous. So it's really hard to portray them. And so it's like this cycle where the people who are writing shows that involve social workers, social workers have such limited experience, so they think, and access to social workers and social work that they're just writing the most dramatic aspects of the job that they can imagine, which then informs the public about what social workers do. And I think there was an answer to your question, Tricia, but I don't know if it's any different from you know, the answer we always come around to when it comes to what's being portrayed on media. So let's go back to the topic at hand then. As we begin to deconstruct the types of um, problems that um, police have been charged with dealing with, mm-hmm. that now people are saying maybe the police is not the best space. Maybe what our way in is not to identify profession, but to actually go much deeper and say, what are the problems? Who are the folks that interact and try to solve and resolve these problems? Who's best suited? Like, or not even who's best suited, but what are the things that we should be aiming to do? Which is why I think this police abolition conversation is such a large and complex conversation because it really gets that, hello, let's bring us right back to this topic we started with. We're in the middle of a pandemic and we have not created a structural solution to mediate risk. And so what we have are people making individual choices with not enough information for them to feel very comfortable beyond wearing a mask and washing their hands and things like that. This feels like it's a large structural conversation about how do we want to take care of people and who's best suited to do what, where. People will lack the necessary imagination to answer that question because of the media issues that we're bringing up. That's a truth. So the question is, what do we do about that? Because well, yeah, I hear you, but I, I just don't know where to go from there. There's an imagination issue. There's also, and I think this is what the article was, was speaking on, the challenge is the structures most ready to receive additional funding, if that's the direction we go, are probably not the most effective ones. So, and again, I'm not like agreeing or disagreeing with the author of that article, but I do think what, and I agree with you, Chris. I haven't seen anyone say, let's send it, you know, send the money for the police to child welfare agencies. But what you do see a lot is let's defund the police and invest the money we save it back in communities, which certainly I agree with. But of course, the big challenge then becomes what does that mean? <laughs> like to invest effectively in a community in a way that actually prevents some of the problems that police end up responding to, what does that actually look like? Yes, there's an imagination piece, but there's also kind of a a political challenge, which is there are lots of institutions that already exist that will be out with their handouts for that 
money. And I don't mean to say that in a judgy way. I mean, child welfare agencies, and I could certainly speak very critically of them, but they're underfunded. All these institutions are underfunded. And so well, they should they, be defunded as well, but that's well, a different topic for a different day. No, and, well, I don't, I don't think it's a different topic, I, but so, but th- we, we're in this conversation now about defunding certain things that are destructive. And I think that's a great conversation to have, but we've invested so thoroughly, if we look at it at a macro level, in oppressive, destructive institutions. We have not invested that much in constructive ones. If you had a magic wand or if you were the one, Chris, who was going to make the decision, if someone said, you know, we're going to, I'm just throwing something crazy out. We're going to, we got $10 million we just took from the police department's budget. We're going to buy your argument that social workers could actually be helpful here. What do we do with the money? How do we invest in social work that's actually going to be impactful to communities that need it? How would you answer that? First of all, Head Start, early childhood education. I know that's not social work per se, but that's the first thing I would do with that money. And then housing. That money would pour into housing support, like both structural and then also people in community housing or projects, public housing, would get access to resources. And here's where the social workers come in, both job, mental health related. That's where all the money would go to because that would cut crime immediately. My reaction is, well, you need social workers to help families connect with those resources, right? Because we know there's an early childhood start in a neighborhood. Some families don't know about it. Some families don't know how to enroll in it. Some families are afraid to enroll in it for different reasons. So, I I mean, yeah, that's the kind of thinking I think we need to do. And I I love your answer because it's it's concise and it's elegant. And to say, let's not invest in child welfare agencies, I think we would all agree with that. But I think you're right. Let's let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is effective social work to be had. But we... We don't have great structures in place. Like even what we just talked about, we do we do have, we like housing voucher programs and that kind of thing. And yes, I, I agree with you about that. We have a program early early head start, but then do we have effective structures that actually reach out to families and connect them with those resources? I'm sure we have some, but like what does it look like to invest in ways that that actually accomplish that? What would, and what would it look like if they were well funded and effective? You know, there are so many social service agencies, there's so many nonprofits in a city like New York who are all working on the same thing, doing different parts of different, you know, everyone's working on different parts of the same problem, right? Yep. And there's not a lot of collaboration because the way that the money streams into those agencies, right? Because of the results right. that the funders want to see, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, as a social worker in the field, I'm always stunned that I've been living here for God knows how many decades, and there are still agencies that be like, oh, you, you all do that? I had no idea. I've been looking for an agency that does that for clients. Like, how long have you been doing this? 40 years? Oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> if, there was, if there was a way that those agencies could either work together or amplify the fact, not even their message, just the fact that they're there and available. Like, I, I think about this all the time, especially in this moment when we talk about, well, let's think of alternate ways. I'm like, the ways already exist. You just, you've never heard of them. I think the key point to her article is that many of the institutions we create are carceral. They are about punishment. And so as we begin to redistribute funds or think about redistributing funds, we have to make sure that they do not hold people hostage through the kind of conceptualization of service delivery that you're talking about. Right. I mean, because many of the kinds of res- the service model that people conceive of is very punitive. 
It's like, I'm going to take your child away or you don't deserve to have access to this thing. So these are, I think that's the piece of it that I found most useful in the piece is the notion of unpacking how we are responding to problems that people and communities have. And I would say that her article was very uncontroversial. Like I agree yes. with everything she said. It's just that I can feel the linkage that she was making to social work. Like Jason had said, child welfare is like a very small part of what social workers do. And a lot of people in those agencies aren't social workers. Right. You know, there are people that they hired to get a job. They don't have social work degrees. They haven't been trained. Social work training is not a joke. It's really freaking serious. It takes up, it's not one of those things you can do part-time. I know there's people pursuing part-time social work, but at some point you've got to go all in. It's, it's tough stuff. Um, but a lot of people just wouldn't know that, you know? Um, but I, I hear, but so to the point you're making, Trisha, like, yeah, I think we need to stop thinking about getting services as punishment oriented, which I think so many of our services are mm -hmm. like, oh, like, you stole some bread, no time to talk to you about what that was about. You're off to jail, you know, yeah. like, or, oh, you took your kids to a job interview and you left them in the car and they fell asleep. Oh, no time to talk about why you didn't have childcare. You're off to jail and the kids are off to new homes. Like that is the way that we think about that. And that's like a very deep, ancient, Protestant, Christian, like idea about how best to help people, right? By holding something out like a stick and a carrot there's only one way there. If you miss, you fall and you fail and you're punished. That's like a society thing we need to look at. I, I think that's that's right. I do think we are in a moment of great challenge. It's an opportunity, but it's a great challenge. I was just, just I don't know, a little bit before we started recording today, I just saw a headline. I didn't read the article, but I think it was the Los Angeles Unified School District School Board um, voted to renew the $33 million school police contract or something like that. Oh. And I'm, I, again, I didn't read the article. I'm not judging them one way or the other. But I, I do think we're now in this moment where entities that are responsible for the well-being of children, um, like school boards and like, you know, local governments, where they're being pressured for good reason to defund things. And I think, again, that's, that's good. But I do think there's this moment of challenge where, I mean, I agree with everything you both said about the problems with our child welfare systems. At the, at the same time, and this is going to sound similar to the conversation we had last week about, um, or we had recently about guns and that kind of thing. At the same time, we have kids in danger, and there are systems we have in place to respond to it. They're very bad systems. I think we can all agree with that. But in the interim between you know funding things and them ramping up to actually get ahead of some of these problems, we've got you know kids in really awful situations. And I, I don't have an answer to that. Like I don't envy people on school boards, for instance, that have to deal with that where, okay, we could decide right now we're disbanding the school police force. And then if there are incidents next week, like their heads are gonna roll. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm interested to hear if you two have thoughts. I don't know the answer to that. I think it's a very tough situation. Does the research, but does the research bear that out? Does the research bear the bear out that the fact that the presence of police are actually solving problems for schools? Because, I mean, we talk about the fact that, that we're always mediating risks. I've not seen a lot of research data that the presence of a, a cop in a school has prevented some of the things that people perceive having a cop will do, which is decrease school shooting. Decre I mean, like, what it, like, what is that? What is that about? The resource officer 
essentially, I mean, I don't think it resolves what you think it is going to resolve. And I don't think the research bears that out. It's well, also okay. Let, can I, let, let me, can I pull, all right, let's pull out of the school police. Look at it this way. When a kid dies in a foster home where there have been complaints, there, where there have been allegations of abuse, or even in their familiar home, like heads roll. And so right now, if you're a government agency and we say, you know what, your child welfare system is punitive, defund it. And next week, a kid dies in a home that there were allegations and that last week there was a resource to respond to it, but now there's not. That's going to be real consequences for- Let me reframe that for you. So yes, it is true that when, I know in New York, we've had some high profile kids dying and then the the city picks a singular social worker out to dry saying they didn't do their job. And then they change the name of the child welfare agency and they fire the commissioner and they hire someone new and they swear everything's gonna be different for about another eight to 12 years when another horrific case happens. That's a incredibly systemic problem. Those social workers are overworked, fair, right? Like we can say that about a lot of professions, but they're overworked checking in on a lot of families who perhaps we shouldn't be checking in with at all because yeah. their only issue is that they're poor or they're black. If we thought about child welfare differently and we started there, if we just started there, stop punishing people for being poor or for being black or being or for being mentally ill, like actually getting them help with their poverty or their mental illness, then those social workers who are in charge with checking in on kids on home where there might actually be violence, they wouldn't be as overworked and maybe they could do their job even 10% better, even 10% better. So 10% fewer kids would die just, just from tending to people's mental health and or housing needs. If you just start there with that little imagination, where can we end up? So see what I'm saying? Like when you start from the other side, right? We're building towards something progressive as opposed to be like, well, we can't risk a kid dying. So we have to keep the system we're having. I know you're not saying that, but that's what people will throw out there, right? Like, oh, well, look, we didn't have, the, if, listen, if we didn't have the system, how many other kids would die? Let me tell you something. I've been working child, I was working child welfare for a long time. Kids don't have to die for really hideous things to be happening, yeah. not even in, in their homes with their, with their parents, but in their foster homes, yeah. which are supposed to be supervised by the child welfare system. I could not imagine, you are a parent. Can you imagine your parents, your kids are removed from you and then placed somewhere where they are in harm's way no, and it's two to three years before you can get them back? And then that's the damaged child that you get back and the state is no longer interested. I think to Jason's and your point, Chris, the question is like, what are we defining as problems? And I think we have to really be very honest about that. We've really pulled the lens back, but it's great. We've come all the way up. Yeah. I mean, because that's what happens. We are defining problems that are not real problems. They're not dangerous problems. Like, oh, I don't like the fact that your kid is looking this way. Really? And that just think about the, think about as we think about police and as we think about the thing, the reasons they've been called and the reasons they've been accessed. I was doing a little bit more research on kind of like mandatory reporting. And someone was saying, you know, the numbers are really down because of course people 50%. are not making And the question is like, but kids are really in danger. That was the response back. Well, even though mandatory reporting is down, kids are really in danger still. Well, part of that is because schools are not in session, right? And mandatory reporting happens in schools. But the question we have to begin to ask ourselves is, what are people reporting? What are you really tackling? 
And are the, can you unpack some of that bias? Is it because your ki- the kid doesn't look the way you think he, sh- he or she should? And who's in the classroom that's instructing your kids? Because guess what? As the profession is gendered, a lot of women have problems with black and brown kids. And unpacking that and why a kid is, de- why we decide a kid is not well. I mean, this is, I mean, this is like you pull the string and it all comes. Well, but you're, you're suggesting there's down. over-reporting. I, I never heard, over, but they're, they're suggesting there's under reporting now simply because they're not getting it and therefore more kids are in danger. But my suggestion is what are people actually, one thing we need to unpack is what are people actually reporting? Are they really dangerous situations? And how do you, how do you, how do you make those decisions and how do you utilize people's, um, the resources best? I really like where we ended up here. I want to pull us all the way back to where we started. There is an imagination problem here because it's just the way that we frame problems. So yes, reporting is down 50%. Um, Are there children in danger? Yes. Are there a lot of families who are relieved from not having the pressure of, of having to be poor and then being punished for being poor? Absolutely. Absolutely. ACS is leaving thousands of people alone when before they were being brought in just because they were poor or black. In wrapping up, I wanna share this one story. This was from my time working in family court. Um, A woman came into court, ACS had removed her children. Why did they remove her children? Well, she gave birth to a baby. She took the baby to a hospital and she left it in the bathroom there because her understanding was that she knew that she could not take care of the child because she had five children at home. She knew someone would take the child and hope that they would give the child for adoption. Instead of doing that, they used the resources of the hospital and the police and the cameras to locate her, found out where she was, found out that she had five kids at home and there was no electricity or heat in that home. They removed all five children, sent them to different homes and gave her a laundry list of things she would have to accomplish if she wanted to live with her children again. I bring this up because this case frustrates me so much because I was like, one, she was doing what she thought was the responsible thing by the laws that we have about hospitals and fire stations. And instead of finding her and helping her, she's found and punished. And people will believe, oh, no, but we are keeping the children safe. And I was like, are the children more safe now in five different homes with no family? I don't know. You, listener, you decide. But the real challenge here is, is another system possible? Is another way possible where we didn't punish people for their circumstances? If we have an idea of how we will want people to live, if we have an idea of how we want families to live, can we bring that to them affirmatively and positively and not just punish them when they fall short of what we think is the right way? Well, you're both speechless. I mean, we're speechless because we understand. I mean, I'm speechless because I understand the underlying punitive model. We have to, we have to move beyond that. And we can't use the defense of more kids are going to die in the immediate. Yeah. Because guess what? They have been dying. And we've got to figure out how to prioritize social safety nets in a totally different way. And what's more, like, bring us back to the original question is that, like, we're going to have to really work together to educate ourselves and each other about a system that doesn't rely on the police for everything. 
You know, it's really hard to conceptualize. People have such a hard time conceptualizing, like Jason said earlier, or even the fact that social workers do. People are probably seeing social workers for therapy and don't even know. They just assume they're a psychiatrist or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's that we have such little, like, ability. We've had such little exercise in understanding what people other than police do. A lot of that's the media's problem, right? For reasons that we talked about earlier, like there's a physical dynamism to that job and et cetera, et cetera. This is our challenge here. You know, defunding the police, that's all great. Abolishing the police, that's all great. But like, what are we left with is a question that we all have to answer. Not just, you don't just get to sit back, cross your arms, be like, well, what do we do now? Like, this is something we all have to work together to conceptualize. You know, you have to put it into your own head. What does that mean? Who would do that job? What would that look like? Well, I am still feeling hopeful, by the way. I, I've, I've seen a lot of great conversations on this topic, around this topic. Uh, I'm excited as a social worker because social workers are advocates and they're social justice warriors, which is weirdly used to be like a slur, it's something you'd say to someone to insult them. But well, it is still in some circles. I, I mean, I don't want to be in those circles. No, no circles. me neither, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Did you, did you two, have you seen Knives Out? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, you know, that was, he calls her a SJW, the like fascist kid, the Nazi kid. <laughs> yeah. Calls his cousin an SJW. Yeah. All right. Uh, we need to move on to recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Trisha, you've been going first. Oh, so I've given myself a mission in these pandemic times. I've been getting back into reading. You know how much I love reading, but I've struggled with talking about this. This is an ongoing theme, but I've actually found a sweet spot. I think there's a set of readings that I'm wanting and aiming to get done. And so I've begun. So I'm reading this wonderful book called Beyond Respectability, the Intellectual Thought of Race Women by Brittany Cooper. Her essential point is just like how we spend time imagining sort of European philosophers as like I am Nietzschean thought or Sartre, whatever you want to call them. You, you could frame, you could put, create like a frame of reference by the individual. And you might even say we've done that here with kind of, with like W.D. Bois or, or Booker T. Washington. We don't really have that same comfort and language for black women intellectuals. We don't say that we fall within a particular school of thought. And so her project in this book is to sort of trace the lineage of various black women scholars and sort of ground your understanding of the points they were trying to make, who they were, what their ideas were and and create like a through line from like the 1890s all the way up until something like the 1970s and 80s. Awesome. And it's fantastic. I just ran through this absolutely amazing chapter on this woman by the name of Polly Murray. I had not really known or heard of her, but she introduced the term Jane Crow, the notion that black women are trapped in black men's imagination of what's possible for them. And she experienced that because she was a black woman at at Howard University wanting to do so much, but she was the only black woman. And I think in their legal, in their law school, and that was just fraught with problems. And so it's really, and she would probably in many ways would be someone that we would say was a trans person, but there wasn't a term called trans when she was struggling with this. So it's just a really, that was one of the fascinating chapters. So many 
fascinating and I'm Ooh. loving it. And I'm just a chapter away and I'm still convinced that it's great. So Ooh. unlike you, Chris, when you yeah, start I, a book, I was like, right? I hope you, I hope you don't get to the last chapter. And she's like, forget everything that I said, white power <laughs> or something. Then you'd be like, Oh man, I recommended that last week. <laughs> Jason, what are you doing? Well, I was going to recommend elopement weddings, but you kind of preempted that. <laughs> I you nope. should recommend it just without the hiking first. <laughs> I, yeah, I do recommend that. And then this is a, maybe a little bit of a micro recommendation, but I this week decided to finally take the plunge and subscribe to Slate Plus. It means you get the bonus segments, which I've heard about for a long time, and I guess I was persuaded by the like you got to support you know good journalism. So. I'm recommending Slate Plus because I have enjoyed hearing the the continued discussions. They are very good. I was walking down the street one day and I passed uh, this house and out in front of the house, there was a DVD case just on the street and it was called, Please Vote for Me, An Experiment in Democracy by Chinese Eight-Year-Olds. And I was like, well, why not? So I took it home and I watched it. It's a documentary. The filmmaker followed three eight-year-old children who are going to school in Wuhan, China. Uh, this was a couple, this was in 2007. I hope they're all okay. So what it is, is the beginning, the teacher introduces to the class that they will be voting for the class monitor. The, the children don't have a workable conception of democracy or voting. They don't know what the words are in the beginning. So it has to be explained to them. So the teacher picks these three candidates, Lei, Chung, and Xiaofei. It's two boys and a girl and says that you will be running against the incumbent, Lei. The two will be running against him. What follows for the next hour is children trying to figure out how best to present their uh, strengths while emphasizing their opponent's flaws, oh, all no. in a third grade Chinese classroom. It is riveting. It's riveting how quickly the kids get there. The kids' parents are totally invested. They, you know, the two contenders keep saying like Lei is like, Lei is very law and order, right? He hits the other kids. He to, when they're not in line, he wow. screams at them. And then you meet their parents. Both of Lei's parents are police officers who are coaching him how this is what you say in the debate. This is what you do. This is what you do. So all the parents are at home with their kids and they, they go through the election and you get to see who wins. It is great. Sure, it's an experiment in democracy in a country where their understanding of that is so flawed as as far as we understand, you really get to see up close like Chinese parenting. At one point, Chung is playing his flute and his mom comes in and says, what are you doing? That sounds terrible. And he's like, mom. And he's like, you, you're doing it all wrong. And she's like, well, I'm still practicing. It's like, well, you need to be practicing better. I'm going to go in the other room because I can't stand to listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? In yeah. America, it'd be like, oh, you're doing, oh, you're trying, honey. You deserve these a parents, trophy. You these deserve parents, a trophy. <laughs> I love it though. Listen, so the Chinese parents were so clear and watching them coach their kids on these speeches, they don't pull any punches. Please vote for me is what it's called. I found a link. You can see almost the entire movie on YouTube. So we'll provide that. Like I always say for these things, just watch the first five minutes. And if you aren't completely drawn in, then okay, fine. But believe me, set an hour aside. It's, it's great. Did you really find this on the street? I really? found it on the street. That's such like a trope, like a literary trope, right? Of like, you know, I was Robert Browning has that, like, you know, like you're a religious prophet or something. I would, I mean, maybe not for the podcast, but I'd love you both to watch it and then we talk about it because I thought it was it was fascinating cultural experiment. Sounds great. Yeah, it does sound great. 
thank you for this midday recording. But I know that Trisha has another important meeting to go to. So on that note, everyone. Bye. 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 Bye.